Hello and welcome to The Widow Podcast. I am your host, Karen Sutton, The Widow Coach. I am a widow, a mum, a health coach, a life coach and grief coach. I want to help you see that you really can create something truly meaningful after loss. You have everything you need within you and I want to help you find it so you can see how capable and amazing you really are. Helping you find a more positive way through your grief. Hello and welcome back to the Widow podcast. This week I am really excited to introduce you to the lovely Stacey McDonald aka the modern storyteller. Stacey's going to share her story with us and um, you know help give us some hope and and strength and wisdom from her own story. So Stacey hello thank you so much for coming along and speaking to me today. Thank you so much for inviting me to share my story. Oh, it's lovely. Where where are you today, Stacey? I am in Stornoway on the Isle of Lewis. Um, so, and I'm, I'm, and I'm actually in a co-working space today because we have no internet at home. Oh, bless you. <laughs> the joys of living off shore. <laughs> yeah, off grid. Normally, off I'm, grid. <laughs> normally I am on a croft with 16 sheep um, for company. And I overlook the Atlantic Ocean, so I can't knock it. It's beautiful. Wow, that sounds idyllic. What a great place to live. I've just, you know, since since I've lost my husband, I've just found so much joy and comfort from being in nature. And that sounds like you've properly thrown yourself into nature um, and all its beauty. So well done, you. <laughs> my my, my favourite pastime is walking on the beach with the dogs. Oh, oh, yeah, beautiful. You can't beat it, can you? It's the, it's the simple things that bring us the, the, the greatest pleasures, I think. So, Stacey, do you want to, to sort of start by telling us your story and, and how you sort of came to... The world of widowhood after losing your husband Chris. Yeah, um, it's it's funny that that word widowhood mm. is is something I've pushed against right from the right from when I lost Chris, and I think I made a very conscious decision to do that. Mm. So Chris and I had been together for a long time, and he was a driving force behind us actually getting married. I was quite happy with the status quo, and we we were a family. We we have we have a daughter, um, and we got married in October 2013. And as I say, we've been together about seven years before that. And great big wedding, all the celebrations, which was fabulous. And life went back to normal very quickly. Mm. And on the 19th of December, that same year, I was getting up for my final day at work before the Christmas holiday. It was the last day of school before Christmas holiday. And I was always the first up, downstairs, crashing around, making coffee. And I spied Chris sleeping on the sofa out the corner of my eye. It wasn't unusual because he was a bit of a restless light sleeper. So if he woke in the night, he often came down and watched mindless sport on the TV um, and often dozed off on the sofa. But as I was crashing around in the kitchen, there there was no movement from, from the living room. As I walked back through, I knew 
without a shadow of a doubt, there was something wrong. You get that feeling that something's not right. And as I stepped closer to him on the sofa, I could see very clearly that he had um, bruising across his left shoulder and arm and his lips and chin were tinged blue. And I went into autopilot. I have been a trained first aider for all my life. I started when I was very young at school and I went into autopilot and I knew that I had to give him CPR. He wasn't breathing, his chest wasn't moving. So I pulled my 16 stone husband off the sofa onto the floor and started to give him CPR. At the same time as frantically trying to dial 999 so that I could call an ambulance. The lady at the end of the phone was, was very professional, very kind, and she, she wanted to talk me through how to do CPR. And, and I was probably very rude and very short with her and said, I'm doing it, I know what I'm doing. Mm. And within a couple of minutes, the first responder paramedic arrived at the house. It felt like six million years, but it was only two or three minutes. We, we lived in the city. Um, we were very close to the ambulance station. So my logic tells me it wasn't long. And the first responder paramedic came through the door 10 to six in the morning. This, this was early in the morning in December, December the 19th. So it was pitch black outside. And he very quickly assessed the situation. And he put one hand on my shoulder and told me to stop. He sort of persuaded me to stop, moved me back, and he did what he needed to do to check. And Chris had died. There, 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 was, there was nothing I could have done, um, nothing the paramedics could do. And the, 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 the next couple of hours that morning were very much a blur of paramedics because it was a sudden death at home, that there's a police presence as well. And it was the last day of school before the Christmas break. And I had a, a 12 year old sleeping upstairs and this was all happening downstairs in the living room. And I think I went on to autopilot myself and shut out the reality of losing Chris. I had to wake my daughter and tell her what happened. And my daughter's very much like me. And she was like, okay she cried she had breakfast she got dressed and wanted to go to school so off she went to school at half past eight and and I I and I had said to the the paramedics and the police officers that were in my living room that nothing happens until my daughter leaves for school mm -hmm. our our house had the stairs in the living room. So she she had to walk through the living room to get to the front door. And, and I was adamant that nothing was going to change until she had left the house. And, and then the, the sort of standard procedures kicked in and, and Chris was taken, taken away and taken to the Queen Elizabeth Hospital in Glasgow had not yet opened in 2013, but the mortuary department had, and that's where he was taken. And then in started this sort of totally surreal day, 
um, mm. because I, yeah, I'd lost Chris and because it was a sudden death, they had to do a post-mortem to find out what had, what had happened. Mm. Um, and that took place very late that night. Um, and I was asked to, bizarrely, to go and identify my husband's body in, in the morgue, um, which there was, a, there was a big disconnect because mm. he died in our own home. But, and and it, when I look back now, it, it, it seems very, very surreal. Mm. But you, you do just go into autopilot because there wasn't anybody else who was going to do that for me. And there was no tears. There was no, there was no wailing. There was no sort of upset. I, I was a mum to a 12 year old who just lost her dad. That was what was keeping me going. And I called on family. I called on friends. Mm. I, I put a post on Facebook because Chris was a big Facebook user. And so it was the easiest way to tell people what had happened. And I decided I just did not want to be a widow. And I remember telling my mum, my mum flew from the south coast of England to Glasgow that day, that morning. And she arrived at my house mid-afternoon. And I remember saying to her, that this can't be real. This, this is not happening on the 19th of December. And it was, it was bizarre, very bizarre. It's, do you know what you, you saying there, there was, there was no, there was no wailing there. There, were, there was no breakdown. I, I was interviewed by somebody earlier this week who, who kind of said, you know, when you found out that your husband had died, that, you know, did you wail? Did you scream? Did you break down? Was there this outpour of, of emotion? And um, like you say, no, it's, you kind of think that you would. Um, but that, that, that practical mode kind of kicks in. I mean, the wailing and the screaming comes, doesn't it, at, at, at certain points. Um, but that, it's that initial, I think, moment, it, the, the shock, you know, it's, it's, it's not the moment that you envisage it would be, I, I don't think, in, in your mind. And, and I, was, I was 36 years old. I, yeah. I hadn't in any scenario, at any point in my head, ever thought that I would lose my husband and and as as circumstances and fate would had it we we were married for 62 days wow and he died and I I do not know anybody else in in having spoken about this many times over I'm yet to find anybody who has lost their their partner so close to being married and having that big celebration and having the big family gathering and all the well wishes and the you you automatically look to your future and you you look forward on a wedding yeah. day and to have it so cruelly snatched away from from you so quickly mm. afterwards and you're right the the wailing the crying the breaking down it does come but i was i was so conscious that I had to hold it together for our daughter. I had to hold it together. It was Christmas. Yeah. I, I, th there was no way that I could have Christmas associated with death in my mm. head. There, mm. there, was, there was 
it just wasn't going to happen. Mm. I remember talking to the funeral director and him offering me Christmas Eve for the day of Chris's funeral. And I said, no, 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 I would rather wait longer Mm. because I cannot have Christmas Eve taken over with the funeral and for that day forever be associated with having a funeral. Christmas Eve is Christmas Eve. It's a time for families. It's a time for joy and anticipation. And he he was very kind and, and said, well, the next available day would be the 28th. And I was like, okay, that so be it. If, yeah. if it means we wait longer, then that has to happen because I love Christmas. Yeah. Chris was a huge fan of Christmas. We got engaged on Christmas Day. Oh, That's man. how big a fan of Christmas he was. So that I had to make sure that the Christmas that we then faced as a, a family of two suddenly mm. with my parents we had to somehow figure out what Christmas was going to look like very, very quickly. We had a matter of days, but I wasn't going to have the funeral associated with Christmas. And that was a very conscious decision I made. It sounds like instinctively, Stacey, you were very driven by not being defined by this moment, that it, it wasn't going to have that sort of negative impact. You didn't like the term widowhood. You didn't want it to, to kind of have that impact on Christmas moving forward and, and kind of scar that for you because it meant so much to you and to Chris. Is that is that something you've always had within you? Do you think that 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 desire to, you know, not want to maybe be a victim of of life's challenges, traumas, tragedies, or do you think it highlighted that within you? No, I think it just reinforced my own personality. Mm. I'm very much a in the moment type of person. I'm very impulsive. I make decisions very quickly. Mm. And I am also quite a strong person. Mm. Um, There are many other things in my life I could talk to you about, which would show how that sort of manifests itself. But I wasn't going to let one single event define the rest of my life. And I knew very quickly that I I was a young woman with a young child Mm. and the term widow was a box I was never going to go into. Mm. And I I wasn't going to conform to being the widow. And that caused lots of ripples, shall we say. There was a um, a lot of people who thought I should behave in a certain way and when I didn't, that ruffled feathers. And um, but I've never been one. I've, that's never bothered me. I'm I'm always my own person. Always have been, and always will be. Um, my new husband now knows that I am absolutely fiercely my own person. But actually, being able to sort of live that out and show other people that you don't have to wear black. You don't have to cry every time his name is mentioned you don't have to break down when your wedding song comes on the radio all of those kind of things and I decided very quickly I was going to talk about him all the time his name was always going to be spoken um we 
that very first Christmas without him. We spent the entire Christmas day talking about what Chris would do and what Chris would say and oh and and this gift is from Chris and because we 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 were organized for yeah. Christmas. We'd bought gifts, we'd sent out our Christmas cards, we'd invited friends and family to a big party between Christmas and New Year. And as fate has it, that was the day of Chris's funeral. So he got his big family gathering, but he just didn't get it in the way any of us anticipated. But I've spoken about Chris and his personality, his traits, the type of man he was, the lessons he taught me, the lessons I taught him, all of that kind of stuff that you do as a couple I've talked about it all the time mm. and it makes people uncomfortable. I've, mm. That's the one thing I've noticed is that some people find it very difficult when I can talk honestly and openly. And I say right from the off, I can do this with a blunt, numb. I, I'm not feeling emotional today talking to you because there's a healing that comes when you talk about things. And I, I stand on that now in, in the business I have. When you talk about your story and you tell people, there's a it's very cathartic and healing comes from talking. And I made it my mission from that very afternoon Chris died. I, I vowed I would always talk about him. And that, that's my personality. I'm an open book, very much an open book. And I decided that I wasn't going to do widowhood behind closed doors I was going to be an open book and I I did and I have I I did the grieving very publicly Hmm. I created an Instagram account a couple of days after Chris died and poured out my my grieving life into that Instagram account Hmm. honest raw open wasn't curated in any way shape or form but I was I was determined that I was just going to be myself and yeah, I pushed people away. I was very selfish. And, and I think grief brings a level of selfishness into your life that you probably don't really recognize until you look back. And people walked away. Other people couldn't handle it. Some people thought that I was wrong. There was a lot of quiet whispered words. There was people who crossed the road so they wouldn't have to speak to me. It was a, a very strange time, but it defined who I who I am today. Mm. And for that, I'm very thankful. Mm. I love that, Stacey. I think there, there's a lot of power in that, isn't there? Because I, I often say that, you know, that it, it shapes who you become, doesn't it? And and actually the, the lessons that you can learn through these tragedies in life and these losses, um, they can be huge if, if you can open your heart to them. Um, but you know it's it's not easy and and i think talking and sharing and releasing what is within is is a great way of helping us sort of find our our way to our healing for sure isn't it um <clears throat> but not everybody finds that very easy some people find it really hard to talk and like you say other people are uncomfortable with it. And I think then then we kind of pull back, don't we? Um, because sitting with somebody else's discomfort just layers our, our own. Um, and, and so you kind of go, oh, do you know what? Let's just let's just not go there. It's it's kind of easier. But then we're holding it all in, aren't we? And 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 that's heavy. And then the kind of the shame is created around it all. So 
how did you go about kind of, did was there just that part of you that thought I just I just don't care what other people think or what other people are saying I, I just need to do this in my way that you would you were just so in tune with what your body was telling you it needed you know mentally physically emotionally um because I truly believe that we all know how to grieve you, you know our bodies will guide us but we don't listen to them. So is that something that you just kind of tuned into and, and went with and you allowed you to guide you through your journey without taking on everyone else's kind of beliefs or, or concerns? Absolutely. Um, and the main reason for that was there wasn't a model for me to follow. Mm. There wasn't an example of somebody who had walked my shoes mm. and I knew very, very quickly that I, I was unique, that, that we had just got married. My husband died from a heart attack. I gave him CPR. All of these different factors made my, my journey very unique. So there was no instruction manual for me to follow. Mm. So I knew I had to just make my own path. Mm. And you're right that there was an intuitiveness about that. There was a okay, I'm, I'm going to do it my way. There was a bit of stubbornness and pig-headedness probably in there too that said, well, nobody else knows what I'm feeling. So how, how, can, I, how can I follow what they think I should be feeling? Because mm. they don't know. And I'm, I'm a huge believer in that if you feel something, it's true. You don't have to justify that feeling. You don't have to explain it to somebody else. Mm. And quite frankly, nobody else needs to, understand it either if you feel it it is true and it is real and it's happening so I just decided that I had to do it my own way Mm. and yes I I scoured the internet for um information about grieving I did some reading I joined different Facebook groups I bought a self-help book I I wanted to learn what what perhaps the patterns should be, or perhaps what there was a society's normal, those types of things. But I, I also knew that I was still going to do it my way, regardless. And I've always been that type of character that, yeah, I'll take advice, of course I will, but I'll still do it my way. Mm. Or I'll listen to what somebody else says, but I'll make my own mind up. Mm. And that was the driving force. So it was, it was totally unknown. And I can look back now and say, I'm, I'm glad I did it that way because mm. I, I didn't, there was no expectations put on my own shoulders. Yes. Other people might have had expectations, but I mm. didn't place any expectations on my own shoulders. Mm. And I, I did things that felt good to me at the time, in the moment. If I, if, if you asked me if I was to, do it all over again would I do something differently probably not because Mm. I think there there is that no rule book no instruction manual it's the same with kids we don't get an instruction manual with our kids but there there genuinely isn't and anybody who tried to offer me opinion or tried to give me guidance I there was an automatic pushback against because they did not know the path I was walking. And we say, walk a mile in my shoes and then you'll understand how I feel. 
but I was very, very sure that nobody else had walked my shoes. Mm. So there was nobody else who could know how I felt. Absolutely. And I love what you say there, because this is something I'm always talking to, to my clients about. It's, it's that expectation that we place on ourselves, you know, and also the expectation from others that we take on for ourselves, you, you know, and it, it is sometimes stopping that and going, do you know, I'm not going to do that to myself. This is where I find myself. This is what I need. I need to, to kind of lean into what feels good for me in, in these moments, what I need to nurture me through this and go with that without that, that judgment and that criticism that we seem to kind of place within ourselves that we're not doing it right. And it's really interesting. You kind of say you, you seeked out groups. Did, did you, befriend any other widows did you find any sort of widow support groups um and did you chat to any other widows and and how did that make you feel because you know often in widowhood um for want of a better word you'll have to tell me if you have a better word but that we we lose our confidence our self-esteem our identity we start questioning everything that we do we we lose the ability almost to kind of be guided by our instincts because we're so driven by what should I be doing? You know, how's everyone else perceiving me? And is this right? Is this wrong? Um, so I'm just interested if you met any other widows and, and how you sort of felt talking to them. Did it help? Did it irritate? Did you know, you know, honestly, kind of just how did that work for you? I, the honest answer is no. <laughs> I, I didn't, I didn't find any other widows. And there was a selfishness about that. I didn't want to compare what I was going through with anybody else. Yeah. And there was there was never going to be that. I'm not particularly one of these people that like to sort of um, pass around the tea and sympathy. It's never been my kind of thing. Okay. I, I'm not. I'm not very good because I'm quite blunt and honest and open. So I would usually be the one that would be sort of putting my foot in it in those types of situations. So I didn't. I didn't find any other widows. I did have a, a particularly uncomfortable experience with one other widow who essentially told me that it was all part of the plan and there was something better for me in the future. And this was only maybe three weeks after Chris had died. And it just, it got me very angry because I, I was like, okay maybe so but you've got no right to tell me that today when I'm three weeks into a journey that you are 20 years into you should have just kept your mouth shut and I the, the overarching sort of emotion was one of anger yeah. because I, I was like but you don't know me you don't know Chris you don't know anything mm. and I, I, looking back today the lady was absolutely right. There has been something else for me in my life, but I didn't need that at that time. And, and I'm a very, I'm a big believer in, I, I, I still don't necessarily draw alongside many other widows mm. because I think it is such a unique experience. Yeah. But I will say to people that, do you know what? This is absolutely rubbish. Mm. I, I can't change it for you. I can't, mm. I can't make it better for you. All I can do is tell you how rubbish it is. I acknowledge how rubbish it is. And if you need to scream or shout or cry or laugh or jump or whatever you need to do, please do it. Mm. Because there is no judgment. Mm. 
Mm. And, and, and I've been very vocal in saying to people, you cannot put widows into a box mm -mm. because every single one of us is different. Mm. Every single widow has a different story to tell and is living a different life. Regardless of whether the circumstances are similar, regardless of whether backgrounds or families or whatever are similar, there are no two widows that are the same. Hmm. So I've been I've been quite insular in that respect, but it's driven me to talk about it more. It's hmm. driven me to be very vocal about being a widow. And I, I don't use the term. I don't even acknowledge that. But I talk about Chris all the time. I talk hmm. about losing Chris and what his death has meant for my life, how things changed, what that first year was like, and then it became a catalyst for change in my life. Mm. It, became, it became the starting point of new things. Mm. So I talk about it all the time. I just don't, I don't put myself in that widow box yeah. at all. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I meet a lot of people that kind of are re repelled <laughs> by that word. It's like, I don't want to be this. It's just that I remember after Simon died, I was I was driving literally a couple of hours driving up to my mother-in-law's house to tell her that he died. So, so it probably wasn't even a couple of hours. And I, and I just remember just being sat in the front of, of the car and all of a sudden just going, oh my God, I'm a widow. I'm a widow. You know, that moment of like, oh god <laughs> um I've never personally had a, a, a problem with with the term widow it, it, it doesn't do anything to, I, I have I, I don't love it I don't know do you know what I mean it, it's just it's a it's a term that but I get it you know and I know a lot of people really kind of struggle with that and I think going back to that other widow that you've met that kind of said to you you, you know other things will happen it's going to open up other opportunities for you it's going to lead you to great you know whatever these things people say I think that I think that's something for us to learn on our own journeys in our own time and in our own way I don't think that's something we should necessarily ever say to anyone else I think that is only our gift to say about our own journeys at a time that is right for us and I would never ever say to anyone else that going through anything in life that you know don't worry because better things are coming or this is going to open up other doors and other you know it's like that's not my place to tell them that you know and and in fact you don't know because you know not everyone is is able to open their hearts and, and their minds to new possibilities new love new opportunity in life because that they, they are they are in their their pain and they, they find it too difficult to step out of and that's not a judgment or a criticism it's just the way it is for some people um so it, it's not you know as much as it's true for some it's not going to be true for everyone is it you know genuinely sometimes these things are the end of people's lives yeah. and, and and they're unable to go on and create something meaningful afterwards so it's 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 kind of a big thing to say to someone isn't it and you say it to someone at the wrong time <laughs> you're likely to get a slap in the face quite frankly <laughs> She was very lucky that she did. <laughs> yes. Bless you. So, so obviously you followed your, your instincts in, in that year and, and went with what felt right for you. What, what do you think within that, that kind of time frame after Chris had died? Um, was there a moment in time? Was there a, a, a particularly huge challenge that you faced or a moment that maybe dawned on you that that kind of did 
crush you a little bit you know and and knocked that part of you that kind of was like I'm not going to be defined by this I'm going to make sure that that myself and my daughter are okay and we're going to continue living did did you have a moment of time that that not not left you but was was questioned Mother's Day Hmm. so Mother's Day was March in 2014 and my daughter and I went to church and we sat and there was a song being played which was called um it is well with my soul and I couldn't sing the words I could not sing that it was well with my soul and the tears were streaming down my face and I I just let the emotions come and I the enormity of my situation I think suddenly dawned on me I I went back to work on the 6th of January, after Chris died on the 19th of December, I went back to my high powered corporate career. And I had worked all the way through January, February, and into March. And that day on Mother's Day, when I think I realized what had happened, it had taken that amount of time. Mm. And I stood there and I cried. And my my 12-year-old daughter's holding my hand and I couldn't speak. And I, I stood, maybe stood there for 10, 15 minutes and, and the congregation are singing around me, various different songs. And I knew then that I actually had to stop and, and take some time to do that sort of grieving thing, which I didn't even know what it was. I didn't even know what I needed. I didn't even know what kind of time I would need but that was a Sunday Mother's Day and on the Monday morning I phoned my boss and I said I'm taking some time off Mm. and I had a very thankful GP who just signed me off for a month eventually I took three months off but I, I just knew that it the status quo couldn't keep going Mm. and I had to lean into the way I was feeling rather than just being on autopilot so it was that mother's day it was that church service it was that song it was those words that it is well with my soul and I couldn't honestly say that at that point and that's what caused me to take the time out it's mad isn't it I think there's especially you you know you're obviously a very sort of empowered strong um person with your own beliefs and and you know you didn't want to be defined by Chris's death so there's almost this element of I'm going to carry on I'm going to carry on I'm going to do my job I'm going to bring my daughter and it's going to be okay and that there's that element of belief that life can carry on yes that your person's died and you've got to grieve them but you can still do the things that you always did before and and I think for all of us there's a moment that you go do you know what actually this is this has changed everything you you know it's not just the fact that I've got to miss my husband and grieve him it the impact it has on us and all the secondary losses that come as a result of that are huge and and I think it sounds like in that moment you kind of realized actually this this probably isn't sustainable for me with everything that that's going on and and trying to support your daughter as well um and and that's hard isn't it so those three months that you took off work how was that 
three months were really strange because I had never had that amount of time off work before. I was a career woman. I was I was very much a corporate high flying person. I worked long hours. I earned a good salary, but I had to stop. And stopping, I still am not very good at stopping now. Stopping was really hard. Sitting and doing nothing was incredibly difficult. Not not for any sort of emotional reason, but just because it was so out of the ordinary. Taking a walk in along, along the Clyde in Glasgow and watching other people going around their day-to-day lives, knowing that I was just out for a walk was very strange and it was very strange and I it took me those three months to sort of figure out actually this is okay this is normal this is allowed I can do these things and in those three months I made some I made some big career decisions and I did some crazy things I abseiled off the fourth rail bridge in Edinburgh for charity wow um I I took up running I started to go running um that says the girl who hated gym at school but I I started to look after myself better I lost a lot of weight I became much more present my daughter and I we went to the cinema we we went out for dinner we did the things that probably yeah previously they were treats they were birthday things they were special occasions but life had very very quickly shown me that there is no tomorrow you do not get given tomorrow it's a gift so you have today and I very quickly learned that I actually have to start living I can't be the career woman who is waiting for the next thing or booking that annual holiday and working all year just to go on holiday. I had to start living in the moment. And that's what those three months taught me that actually I can live today. I don't have to plan for tomorrow and I don't have to mourn yesterday. I can just be present in today. And I've taken that forward throughout everything I've done since. I can only affect today. I I have no impact on what's gonna happen tomorrow and I can't change what happened yesterday. But if I can do my best today, then that's a job well done. Amazing. That is amazing. Do you think your daughter gained from you taking that time as well? Do you think she needed that? I think so. I, we are very, very similar. <laughs> we're, we're two peas in a pod. So if I was feeling it, she was feeling it. Mm-hmm. And she was, she was learning from my actions. Mm-hmm. So I had carried on. I'd gone back to work. Everything was normal on the outside. So, so, so had she, she was beginning to start those years at sort of senior school that actually affect your future, the the years where you actually have to do exams and things like that. So she was on autopilot as well. She was just doing the do. So by taking time off and allowing her to, to say, I don't want to go to school today, mom, I feel rubbish and saying, okay, let's go down the beach then instead and giving her that permission she she is she is one of the strongest people I know today she is she's I always call her my rock because she absolutely was my rock don't get me wrong she's 20 years old now and we clash like any mum and daughter would but she's the she's the closest I've got to a best friend and because 
we we had that shared experience and we had those times where we would listen to a song on the radio and look at each other and burst into giggles because it was a song Chris would dance to <laughs> or it was same thing we would be driving in the car and a song would come on the radio and I would be crying and I'd look over and she would be crying mm. so there, there was that sort of shared experience and by me stopping and leaning into how I was feeling gave her the permission to do exactly the same. I think that's such a, a wonderful example of children don't do as we do they they don't do as we say they do as we do and and I'm you, you know I think we're all guilty of kind of trying to to tell our children <laughs> what's right and what's wrong in life but they're doing the exact opposite ourselves and and sometimes it is you know leading the way walking your talk and and that's what helps them isn't it that's what helps them go oh, okay I can do that yeah. because that's what my my mum or dad is is doing did, did did your daughter have any um bereavement support from any charities or a counsellor or anything or, or did you both kind of find your way through this together um no she didn't um mm. just as I never did either any sort of form of official support mm. um so it was it was the two of us together and that honest, open conversation, being able mm. to talk about it, anything, yeah. um, whether it be the feeling happy, the feeling sad, the memories, the the funny, the funny times, and and she was she was of an age where Facebook was just beginning to be the sort of thing for her age group. So posting videos of her dad running around the garden singing songs and that, that I I'm one comes to mind particularly where the pair of them were dancing in the rain in their slippers one day oh. and those types of things we talked about all the time we laughed we remembered and with me being very honest and open and always talking about Chris she's always had that space to do exactly the same yeah. and even even now on the anniversary of Chris's death I will post something to remember him and so will she she mm. will she will do her ex her own sort of way of remembering in her own way because she's had permission to do so mm. there, there's there's none of this all oh, has to stay behind closed doors you can't tell people how you're feeling mm. none of that so I think that's been the way we've dealt with it mm. and is it right? Is it wrong? Is it what other people would do? I can't answer any of those questions. All I can do is tell you that she's one of the strongest people I know. She's incredibly well-rounded and normal and, and all of what you would wish for a 20-year-old to be. Yeah. And she's forging her own way in her in the world today. And yet she'll FaceTime me and tell me what she's cooking for dinner while she's away at uni. And so we still have that relationship today, which I am so thankful for. Oh, that's so lovely. It sounds like you and Chris have, have kind of done her, her well in life and, and, you know, taught her good values, good morals. She, she's got a good outlook. Does she remind you of Chris? Do you, does she do things and say things that you kind of think, wow, that's your dad? Um, sometimes, yes. Um, and some of the things she comes out with, she does. Yeah. Um, but then... I think we, we, we're both now at the stage where we, we kind of just give each other a knowing look yeah. and, and that's it. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's nice. It there's, we've, my life has moved on. I've remarried. So there's not that necessity to, yeah. to always 
to, to always talk about Chris and there's not that necessity to always be really vocal with what we're, what we're thinking, but just that side eye glance or mm. that sort of sometimes she'll just grab my hand or mm. th- there's just the subtlety about it now as she's got older and I've got older that there's a subtlety in our shared experience, which again is, is super valuable and and I'm very fortunate to have it. Mm. It just it brings me joy to know that she's she's okay and mm. she's she's happy. Yeah. What 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 parent doesn't want happiness for their child? But mm. I know that she is because she can tell me. Lovely. And and that I'm very thankful for. Absolutely, because there's no guarantees, is there, in, in life? And, and you know, I we, I think we're all guilty of it. And I, I certainly speak to a lot of my clients that kind of believe that their child's happiness, it, they're able to provide that for their child. You, you know, it's like our job to make them happy. And, and it's that kind of reminding ourselves that we can't. We, we are, it's, it's not within our gift to make someone else happy in their life for a moment yes you know you can bring moments of joy um but ultimately it's it's, it's got to come from within hasn't it yeah um and if we can teach our children to do that and to create it for themselves within themselves then I think then that is brilliant you know especially after childhood trauma um because you don't know what impact that's going to have especially as it does come back and revisit over the years doesn't it, it it's not a, a sort of said and done thing there's these moments she's at university and she's going to graduate and you know, these things get bought up, don't they, as, as you move on. But you, you've kind of said you're, you're now remarried. How sort of quickly after Chris died or how long after Chris died did you start to think about dating and how did you approach that with your daughter? How did all that kind of work out for you? I went through the year of firsts and on the anniversary of Chris's death, that first anniversary, I stood at his graveside And I had a conversation with him and basically told him that I was bone lonely. I was so lonely in life. And I I had that conversation in the rain, stood at a cemetery. And the following day, I drove from Glasgow to my parents' house on the south coast of England. Wow. And I, a nine hour drive going down there for Christmas. And I decided in the car that enough was enough was enough. I had been the widow for the year. I had done everything my own way, but I I didn't want to be on my own anymore. I, I'm a personable person. I love company. I'm I'm I have a huge heart to give, and I didn't want to be on my own. So when I got to my parents' house, I got to my mum's house, and I said to my mum, I said, I've decided that I'm gonna live life now. And her face lit up Aww. and she was like, okay, what does that mean? And I said, I've joined an online dating agency. And I'd done that that night, just spare the moment, completely sort of impulsive. But actually within a couple of days, I had a little message from from this Highland man who had sent me a smile of all things. And we we started to chat online. Um, I didn't know where he lived. I didn't know which part of Scotland he was from. But we started to have good conversations online. And that January 2015, many a late night on WhatsApp talking to each other. 
and he invited me to meet him. He said, let's meet up, let's have, let's actually see if the friendship that we had developed, was there gonna be anything more than friendship? And we were both very honest with each other that we had made a friendship for life, regardless mm. of whether there was any spark or chemistry or whatever you wanna call it. Mm. I had a friend that I had told some of the, the those innermost thoughts that you think about, that you don't tell anybody else, mm. only your partner. So I knew regardless of what was going to happen, I'd made a good friend. And we did the classic cliche thing. We met under the clock in Glasgow Central Station, which is a very famous meeting point in Glasgow. And I happened to work for the railway at the time. So I had contacts. I was able to go and sit in the control room of the station, which is up high and it's got glass windows and you can watch the concourse. And I did, I watched him arrive and we'd only chatted online. So I had to make sure that he looked like his pictures, but I watched him for a couple of minutes and I could see him getting really nervous that it was the time we'd agreed and, it, and there was nobody coming to meet him. And I went down and met him and, and we, we enjoyed a lovely meal that evening and the conversation just moved from the online WhatsApp to the real life. And we, we, we clicked, absolutely clicked, but it was, it was a friendship first. It was mm. this honest, open mm. friendship that then grew into a love story, if, if you want to put it that way. Yeah. But I, even at that point, I still did not know where he lived. He still had not told me where he lived. Um, and he invited me to visit him here on the island. And I did. And I flew to meet him in the March of 2015 and arrived in this lovely village in nine o'clock at night, pitch black, woke up the next morning and opened the curtains and viewed the view and decided there and then that I was going to marry this man because <laughs> it, and don't get me wrong, that sounds very, very sort of impulsive. I am, but that the friendship, the relationship, the feelings had grown through all our conversations, through all our meetings, but actually where I now live, the far west coast of the Isle of Lewis, there was a calmness and a peace mm. that the city never, ever gave me. I love the city. I've always loved cities. But this place stole my heart as much as the man stealing my heart. The place stole my heart as well. So we we met very quickly. So just over the year and, and I, I was ready to meet somebody. And Angus was the first person I met and the first wow. person I had a conversation with. And very, very quickly, we knew that it was his second chance. It was my second chance. Mm. And we were both of an age. I was trying to think, well, how old was I? I was sort of 39. Angus was early 40s. There, there was, we weren't young and silly and stupid. Mm. He had a, a, a house and a career and a life. And I had a career and a life. And we were two grown up hurting people that found love together so it was it was a gift and I we both say now that we came into each other's lives exactly when we were needed and my story of losing Chris and and his story 
we wouldn't be together it wasn't for our stories mm. so it's mm. it's that piece that, that's brought us together and yeah we're, we're now married five and a bit years oh my god so you so you married in 2016 then is that, yep. is that yes yep. so did you move then to, in in 2015 to the the island to be with no you? we we kept our relationship um very much old-fashioned and um he proposed in the february 2016 and we got married in the september and we then started a sort of a commuter style lifestyle mm. so he had a job and house here on the island I had a job and a house on the mainland so we we spent weekends together Mm. and I had made a promise to my daughter that I wouldn't move her out of school until she finished all of school Mm. so I stuck to my promise so when she decided she was going to go to university then I had the opportunity to to Mm. decide did did I want to move to the island full time and I did um, and I moved to the island in December 2019. So I have not yet been here two years full time. Wow. But um, I love it and I wouldn't be anywhere else. That's lovely. That's so lovely. And and did your was your daughter OK with you meeting Angus and, and creating this 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 new relationship with him? She was um, cautious to begin with. Mm. And that's absolutely understandable. Yeah. But she acknowledged the fact that he made me happy Mm. and we were very honest and open and we had lots of discussions about that sort of that's what was important for me about the happiness and she was very much aware that she was coming up to sort of 17 18 Mm. life was just beginning for her she would be going off to university and doing her own thing so we had those open conversations that I couldn't put my life on hold for for her. Mm. And just as I would never expect her to put her life on hold for me. Mm. So we were, we, we just approached it with that real honesty. Mm. And there were, there were occasions where she was grumpy that I was maybe going out for a weekend um, and she was fending for herself. And then there was the, the, the sort of talk about leaving the, the town we lived in on the mainland when I was leaving the house and she was like but I'm at university and I've got nowhere to come home to Mm. and I was like home will always be where I am Mm. and now she loves the island and calls it home so this is home for her so it wasn't a quick thing it's taken it's probably taken the first three or four years of our marriage but now Rona Mm. sees this as her home as well Mm. so we have come full circle but I I really do put that down to the fact that we were we spoke about it all the time and we we didn't hide the facts from each other we didn't hide the emotions yeah and that's something that I've instilled in her and I know that she instills in all her relationships and friendships that she has because it's so important I think so I think communication and honesty it, it it is to me I don't know it's the only way you know just to have those conversations to to speak about what's going on for you how you know I think you can say anything to anyone if it if it's said in the right way um you don't have to be grumpy and bolshy and 
you know upset anyone with what you want to say but if something's hurting you or you're uncomfortable with it talk about it you know yeah. have the conversations uh was there sort of when you met angus was there guilt to, to chris that you felt or kind of that day at the cemetery when you'd had the conversation did did that almost was that you giving yourself that permission there wasn't any guilt and the probably the biggest discerning factor in that is that they are totally different men mm. they are like chalk and cheese mm. they 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 would never they would never be friends in real life they would never probably even have met mm. they would never mix they are so different and the love I have is so different it's mm. a total different thing and that that becomes very hard to explain mm. but I love Chris and that's a present tense love. Mm. I love Angus, but mm. it's totally different. Mm. And there, there was never any guilt. And there's, there's always been a sort of voice in my head that's always said, go for it, toots. Chris always used to call me toots. And there's always that sort of go for it, toots. It's as if he would be cheering me on and, and mm. sort of celebrating with me mm. because he was that type of man who would always want the best for people. He would always want the best outcome. Mm. He'd want you to be happy. He'd want you smiling. He'd want you laughing. So the, the knowing the type of man he was, he would, he would be the one cheering me on the loudest. Um, so I, they are, I liken it to chapters in a book, the chapters that I had with Chris were were joyous they were entertaining they were lovely losing him is a very short chapter in that book but the book has to continue mm. my my book did not finish when chris died so now i'm writing new chapters in my book with a new man mm. it does not mean that those previous chapters have been ripped out and ripped up they are still there. I still refer to them. I still remember them. I go back and read them often. Yes. But I'm thoroughly enjoying writing new chapters. That's so beautiful, Stacey, isn't it? Because we can get caught up, can't we, in, in kind of what happened in our past um and and feel that guilt and that shame for wanting to write those new chapters and create something meaningful and fun after loss and, and we can hold ourselves back with that guilt and shame but like you say it's kind of acknowledging what was and and knowing that that has shaped who you have become and it's, it's a wonderful part of your journey but also there, there's more to come and there's more joy and and more meaning in that in in the new chapters of your life for sure and and i think that's just such a wonderful reminder for everyone Thank you so much for listening today on The Widow Podcast. If you would like to find out more about how I can help you, please visit my website, www.karensutton.co.uk. I would love to help you find your way forward to a brighter future. So get in touch, let's have a conversation and let's help you take back control and find a more positive way through your grief. I look forward to hearing from you.